irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. Welcome to All Things Therapy. I'm your host, Lisa Tahir. I hope everyone had a really nice Thanksgiving break. I'm happy to be back on the air this week. As you know, if you've been listening, I am a licensed clinical social worker practicing as an intuitive psychotherapist. You can find me through my website, which is nolatherapy.com. It's the abbreviation for New Orleans Los Angeles Therapy. There are links you can follow to schedule appointments with me. You're able to subscribe and listen to archived episodes of this show from NOLA Therapy. If you're inclined, I would really appreciate your support, supporting me through my crowdfunding campaign with Patreon.com through NOLA Therapy. And you're now able to take advantage of the offers available to you at a discount through the affiliate links on my All Things Therapy LA Talk Radio show page. Again, all accessible through nolatherapy.com. And today's podcast is brought to you by Audible, where you can get a free audio download of a book along with a 30-day free trial. You just go to audibletrial.com forward slash all things therapy. Altogether, no spaces or capitalizations. They have available over 180,000 titles to choose from. Okay, I'm excited to introduce my guest. She has extensive credentialing and education in the field of clinical psychology. In just moments, we will be with Dr. Mary Plouffe. For over 35 years, she's been a clinical psychologist. She has served on the faculty of the State of Maine Medical Center Psychiatry Residency Program. She's a member of the Maine Board of Examiners of Psychologists. She's a consultant to multiple public and private schools in Maine and has presented at numerous conferences on topics of clinical psychology and ethics. Dr. Pluff has been published in and by NPR on the Issues Magazine, Survivor Review, Mothers Always Writes, and Brainchild Magazine. She is also the former president of both the Maine Society of Forensic Psychologists and the Maine Society of Clinical Hypnosis. Today, we're going to be talking about her work in addition to her memoir, I Know It in My Heart, Walking Through Grief with a Child. Welcome, Dr. Mary Pluff. Thank you, Lisa. I'm delighted to be here. I'm so happy for you to be my guest today. And I'm wondering, where would you like to start our discussion on your work and on your memoir? Well, I, I'd love to talk a little bit about the story of the book, because Please. those who have not read it um, need to know sort of where this all happened. Um, this is a per- very personal story and written as such so that it can be read by anyone who cares about how families work and how families deal with trauma and tragedy. My sister asked me to take her daughter, who was then three and a half, for three weeks while she underwent an experimental procedure 
that was the last recommended treatment for breast cancer, which had been successfully treated with chemo and radiation. But this was experimental, and she wanted to help uh, the, the research along and also wanted to do anything she could to guarantee that she'd be here to raise her daughter, who was uh, only three at the time. Yeah. That three weeks turned into four months because of delays and complications, and sadly that treatment uh, took her life after a month in a coma rather than extending it as we had hoped. So this is the story of my relationship with that little girl from age three when she comes to Maine for what she thinks is going to be a fun vacation with her cousins and all the way through until about age 15. Um, And Mary, I am really sensitive to your story and your memoir that, that you lost, not only lost your sister, just the layers of grief, love, loss, and grief, losing your sister, seeing your niece um, go through the loss of her mother, and and just all that that entails. And in the in the memoir, you're so transparent and just open about about what this experience was like for you. And I just I just really loved that about your work, how you were so transparent about such a painful topic. Thank you. That was actually the hardest thing about this. I started my process of writing this um, really um, long after my sister's death, not until 2006 uh, did I even think that this might be a book. And then I thought it would be a book only about Leah Marie. And it took me a long time and a lot of uh, push from others to recognize that if I was really going to talk about childhood grief and how different it is in some ways and how uniquely it follows a developmental path, the best way to do that was to compare it with adult grief. And Mm -hmm. that meant I had to be as self-disclosing as I could be. Um, And frankly, that's that's not what a therapist normally does, nor what an introvert normally does. And I am both of those. And so that was the biggest challenge. I will tell you, Lisa, It's been the biggest reward, though, because so many people have said they resonated to the adult grief portion of this book as strongly as they have to the new things they were learning about childhood grief or the deeper understanding they had of what children go through. You know, and I'm I'm curious, Mary, that that you were a clinical psychologist for, I think, about 20 years at the time you lost your sister. Is that accurate? That's right. Yes, that's accurate. And, yep. and so I'm, I'm curious how, how you just spoke to the point of we're trained, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker, not a psychologist. Right. However, I think we're trained similarly in to have good boundaries and not really disclose a lot of personal information. And so I'm curious how it helped you being a psychologist and how it might have hurt your grief process and, and being who you are as a professional. You mean through the grief process or in the writing of the book? Either way, however you'd like to answer. Well, in in the grief process, I think what really helped was the sense that I had a unique set of skills that I knew um, I could bring to this little girl. And I think any time you, you know, all of us were suffering. I had three children. They were 10, yeah. 15, and 20. Um, they were a part of this dramatic loss. Her dad, who's a wonderful man, was devastated by this. 
and we all had our reactions to it. I think for me to say, okay, I, I've done child therapy, I've played on the floor, I understand child development, um, sometimes being able to be functional and to do something useful is uh, extremely powerful therapy for yourself when you are feeling like the whole world is spinning out of control. And it was for me. I did not close down my practice. I limited it and curtailed it to, to those things. But it was helpful for me to go to work. Um, yes. But most of all, it's helpful for me to use what I knew to help this child. And so for our listeners to know, I don't know how many people listening have read your memoir, but your sister is, is Martha and her daughter mm-hmm. is Leah Marie. And uh, so when you mentioned the little girl, we're speaking of Leah Marie and the journey you went through with her through um, just so beautifully written of, of Leah Marie at three grappling with this this abstract notion of her mother dying and, and children at that age not having a language to really understand that process and that event happening. Can you talk to our listeners some some about this piece? Sure. Um, what happened to Martha is that she finished her uh, inpatient portion of the treatment and went home and expecting to come back two nights, two days later for a further uh, process of treatment that she could do outpatient. She had a uh, sudden 106 fever, was hospitalized through the emergency room, and then had the experience of what is called ARDS, Adult Respiratory Distress Syndrome, which means that she essentially crashed, her lungs fell apart in in simple language, and she was put on a respirator and was unconscious for a month. So we had her fully with us up until that moment, and then as suddenly she crashed and was unavailable to us. So that was a very different uh, experience from uh, one that others might have of knowing that she was going to die. We did not expect that. Exactly. And even when she, yeah, even when she crashed, the first couple of weeks of that month, the hospital was still hoping that she uh, could recover. So, yeah. So it was, and and just in your story, there was commuting because your sister, Martha, was at Johns Hopkins, correct? Getting, receiving her treatment. She was at Johns Hopkins and she lived in Herndon, New Jersey, which is just a, uh, you know, an hour up the road. And so... Uh, for someone out of state, they would have had to stay for that second portion, but they had allowed her to go home because they knew she could commute and drive to the hospital um, from home for that that second portion of the research uh, treatment process. Um, But we had to, to go back to your original question, we had to decide really what um, how to bring Leah Marie into that room, whether to bring her into that room, whether it served a purpose her to see her mother at uh, at that juncture um, and those were uh, hard hard decisions that I try to articulate in the book because I don't think there's one right answer to that I can only tell our story and how we struggled with that question because um, I think it's a very hard question it is and and from the memoir just your reaction to seeing your sister be being intubated and it was shocking and jarring for you. And and I like when you wrote about how just trying to put yourself in Leah Marie's shoes 
kids? What would she think knowing that children store memories and images and, and just sights and smells, that kind of more primitive memory storage? Right. Uh, sensory pe- memory. Children exactly. have much more sensory memory, yeah. And then how you brought down to, to Leah Marie a piece of the tubing, you know, some of the things to ask her, you know, this is what's in your mommy's throat. And she knew immediately, little Leah Marie knew it was a no. I, I don't want to see this. It'd be too I scary. Think that's the, I think that's the one of the most powerful messages of our story. And I've certainly, with others that I've worked with, found this to be true. Children need to be asked what they want. And yeah. Their opinion needs to be respected. And yes, you need to explore, you know, with them why, but um, she never wavered from saying it would be too scary for me. And I, I, I think she was right. Um, and I, I think, I think so that, yeah, um, it's, it's a hard call, but I, I don't think every child would make the same decision. I've, I could give you examples of many other children who have, uh, you know, wanted to be more involved uh, at different in different ways. But boy, respect for what a child knows about themselves is so important to me. And additionally, at a little bit later in the book, one of the nurses caring for your sister was talking to your sister's husband and really pushing him to have yeah. little Leah Marie see her mother even in this yeah. state. And I remember reading about the dialogue. Um, and just how hard that must have been. And thank goodness that you all both respected Leah Marie's wishes. I think a lot of parents would have deferred to the professional and and made her see her mother out of their own fear and guilt of what might happen years later. Can can you talk to us some about that, handling well, I, that? I think, I, yes, I, I, I think that was a key, key moment. Um, it, to give the nurse her, her credit... Um, she had a belief system that uh, children who did not see their mother dying would think their mother had disappeared and gone away and, and uh, would not have a sense of, of the reality of death. Well, we had been dealing with Leah Marie at home and talking about death in very real, direct ways. She'd been playing it out with me on the floor. I knew she understood at as much as any three-year-old could, that her mother might die. We had been talking about that. For, so I wasn't afraid that she thought her mother was magically away, away or that if she didn't see her dying, I was more afraid that without her mother's ability to relate to her, and I would have made it, I'll be honest with you, Lisa, if Martha could, was awake, if she could have in any way been aware that her daughter was there, we might have made a different decision. Yes. Because I think that would have been a soothing connection for them both. Um, This nurse's statement to me, and I think I articulated in the book, when I said to her, we're we're trying to decide and we we don't want to to terrify this child and leave her with a visual image that's that's so horrific, uh, unless something good can come out of it. She gave away, I think, what was her real intention, which is, if I were your sister, I would want everyone around me and as I say in the book and it became clear to me that she wasn't really going looking through the eyes of the child she was looking through the eyes of the patient and that's fine but I I knew what Martha would have said don't do anything to harm my daughter of course yeah 
Yeah. And I think the sensitivity that you and her dad had really came through in in the story. And a part that really got me, I, I shared with you before we came live, that uh, reading your book just brought up a lot of emotion. I cried it several times, being the oldest mm-hmm. of, of three younger sisters and how close we are. My sisters are just amazing women in, in my life. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't help but just put myself, try to put myself in, in your shoes and just the complexity of issues, just the the portion of the book where you talked about naturally you'd want to sit next to your sister Martha and touch her, you know, have your hands be as close as you could since she was non-responsive, but you would notice her kind of, you know, writhing more, which would seem like in pain. And then the medical professionals advising against that because wasn't, didn't that cause her to feel more pain or stress being touched? It did, and it dysregulated her heart and lungs sometimes. It almost made her autonomic system struggle against the breathing mechanisms that were trying to help her lungs heal and keep her oxygen level even. So, yes, we were told that even though it soothed us, it wasn't soothing to her, and it isn't often soothing to people who are intubated. Um, And that is hard. (laughs) Yeah, so hard, just... Just that's a moment where I really felt a connection to to your experience and the way that you wrote that. Yeah, we have to do what works for her. And at, at that moment, I really had to revert back to talking to her in my mind and understanding that it, when I looked over at her, whether she knew I was there or not, my my touching her was was not helpful to her. Yeah. So. Where would you like to go next in, in our I think dialogue? I, I think there are a couple of things. One is um, to talk a little about the developmental process of grief in the young child. Because if, if I had one goal with this book when I started to write it, as I said initially, um, and uh, the story of this book is that these... The, it was the earliest pages were just my desperation at three in the morning to try to put something down on paper to struggle with my own grief. And I never had any intention to use this as a book, but I wanted to record what Lee Marie was saying and what I was advising to clear my mind, to think about it. And Herb wanted me to do it, Marge's husband, right. because he wanted some record to share with his daughter to help her when she was an adult. It was only when she, when he remarried when Leah Marie was 10 years old, and that was the first time that anyone had shared, anyone had asked me about whether I'd written anything, and he said to me, will you share some of what you shared with me with my new wife? And, and she had three sisters also. They all wanted to read it, and her mother, and their reaction to it really struck me as, oh my, maybe this could be a book. Um, And so that's really when I began to pull it together and think, how could this be helpful to other people? And to be able to, to understand that children take in the experience, they can only take in the experience at the age they are when they have it. Um, And then they have to and they grieve what they have then. So for a a three-and-a-half-year-old, it's very much sensory grieving. It's grieving Mm -hmm. the touch, the smell, the taste, the feel of mother. It's not really even grieving her face or her voice because sensation is 
so much more powerful and they're still at a very tactile stage. Um, As they grow and develop, um, I like to say children grow into their grief and their awareness and who they are becoming at five and seven and nine makes them understand what they've lost at a new and different level than they than they did uh, at the age at which the loss happens. And so the grief is recycled right. and re-experienced for a child. They grow into their grief as they grow up and as they discover who they are. And now what does that mean that I do not have a mother now? And so it's very different from adults who who start the initial phase of grieving. They know who they are. They know who the adult is that they're grieving and then and time follows in a very different way uh, for children. And on that note, it was really beautiful to read how as Leah Marie would get older, she would invite you to Mother's Day at her school in class. Yes. And, and that became consistent. How, how was that for you? Um, you know, it. her birthday and Mother's Day co- almost coincided every year. Her birthday was uh, right around Mother's Day, sometimes it was the same day. It was the same day the year that Martha died. Two months mm-hmm. later, her birthday was Mother's Day. That was probably one of the hardest. But in in the over the years that followed, uh, um, I was grateful for that because I I went down almost every other weekend, uh, or, and then on alternate weekends, Herb would bring her to Maine in the first year after Martha's death. And then gradually, as time went on, there were a little more spaces in that. But to play the role of mother, um, as I've written further about this, I talk about there are three losses. There's the loss of mother, the person. There's the loss of mothering, the function, mm. the having someone who does this for you. And then there is the feeling of motherlessness, which is more woven into a child's identity as they move more into middle elementary school. What does it mean about me to be a motherless person in the world? And and so to answer your question, the mothering that I could do by being there on Mother's Day, by being there on her birthday, was uh, a powerful intervention. And I think I felt good about doing it. And she didn't want to give it up. She really wanted me there. She wanted that person to step into the mothering role um, on those moments. And when I hear you, Mary, talking about these these three levels of, of loss and grief for a child, I'm reminded of um, when you were speaking about for children, muscles living in their bodies and in their muscles as sensory memory, uh, as smell, as touch, and just remembering in your memoir that Leah Marie was really only soothed by touch, by even sleeping next to her dad and feeling like his foot touching hers and just how important the mothering piece is of, of for her healing and just for her stability in the world and how conscious her dad was of that. And you were of that, that you both really were so just present with her. We tried to be, he's a, he's a wonderful um, man and a very outgoing extroverted um, Latino New Yorker. As I said in the (laughs) book, we could be more opposite uh, in temperament and personality 
but he loved his daughter to the nth degree, and this was a devastating loss for him, and frankly, complicated by the fact that while Martha was uh, tr being treated for cancer the whole prior uh, nine months, um, his company moved him to Las Vegas, and so he had been living. He was commuting. Living. Yes. He had been commuting uh, to Las Vegas from D.C. Uh, because they couldn't give up the health insurance that covered her treatment. Um, and so he, he had been... He had been feeling a, a disconnect from his daughter because he ha he wasn't there day in and day out like right. he had normally been when he lost his wife and so he really uh, put every effort and energy that he could into being there for her and and with her after this happened and that's what I was I was trying to paint the picture of earlier just with the the proximity and the distance of things with herb Martha's husband, Lee Marie's dad, working in Las Vegas and then, you know, being on the, living in the Northeast, just that commute and just how you all made it work regardless of what it took to pull together as a family in the middle of this completely unexpected event of, of the treatments, ultimately taking the life of your sister. Yeah, well, the the we did the best we could, you know. Yeah. And, uh, thank thank God for thirty nine dollars Southwest flights from Manchester, New Hampshire to BWI. Those were the days yeah. when Southwest Airlines was just starting up, and and I was able to fly down very inexpensively, and so I, I wore a path back and forth because having worked with very young children before, presence is essential. They do not have a strong sense of time and they do not have a strong sense of internal, what we call internal object relations. They can't hold the, the soothing feeling of someone who loves them with long absences. You need to be present and you need to be present regularly in order for them to really feel that comfort. You know, as we grow, we can be soothed by a picture of someone we love. The we memory. By a memory, a, a conversation that we repeat in our heads. But very young children, do their brains are not wired for that. They're wired for immediate experience and for taking in new learning, not, not for being able to record things the way that adults do. And so they need that presence and, and uh, frequency matters. Um, because just developmentally, object relations, developmentally, object permanence isn't developed yet in young children that when the loved one is gone, you know, they feel gone as opposed to remembering that they're just in the other room or away on business. And yes, yeah, so seeing Lisa, little Leah Marie go through, go through this, I'm wondering, Mary, if we can take a pause for me to do the quick little uh audible plug and then come back and talk more about this okay thank sure. you so for the listeners of all things therapy audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30 day trial to give you an opportunity to try out their service like i said earlier there are over 180,000 titles available including the girl on a train and divergent to download your free audiobook today Go to audibletrial.com forward slash all things therapy for your free audiobook and download. 
Okay, Mary, thank you. Today's my first day doing this, so I'm a little rusty. <laughs> so I appreciate your... <laughs> That's great. <laughs> thank you. So just talk, you know, one of the pieces of your book as well that struck me being a social worker and, and having worked with kids more in the past than, than currently mm-hmm. in my practice is all the play therapy with the Barbie and Ken dolls that was so rich with how Leah Marie processed uh, losing her mother with Barbie mm-hmm. and Ken going through setting up the dollhouse. And can, can you talk to our listeners some about that? Yes. Um, I had done a fair amount of play therapy in my training, and it was interesting to me that Leah Marie went instantly, as soon as this crisis happened, to doll play on the floor. Um, the very first night, we brought her up to uh, Johns Hopkins, um, thinking about whether she would see her mother or not, and that was the night that she played with the the um, tube and said, "I don't, I can't do this. I, I, mm-hmm. uh, it's too. It would be too scary for me." The very next morning, she played out a scene with Ken and Barbie, and uh, they go out dancing, and then they come home, and then Barbie goes to sleep um, in the bed alone and then she wakes up and in the morning she wakes up but in the night Leah Marie says in the night she dies but in Mm. the morning she wakes up right Mm -hmm. (laughs) and asking I realize asking me if my mommy dies will she be able to wake up and as we talk as you you know have noticed about the book and I I think the readers will get the sense that Children do not know what you tell them. They know what they understand. And it takes a long time for uh, a child to understand. It's not a one-trial one learning. When I had to say to her, yes, dolls can wake up when they die. And she said, my mommy will wake up too if she dies. And I had to say, no, uh. people don't have that kind of magic. They cannot wake up when they die. But that was the conversation we were going to have to repeat over and over and over again because, first of all, the construct of death and what it means and its permanence um, and and the reality of that um, takes time for her to absorb. Yes, yes. And it was just so emotional reading about about how she would then at other times replay that scene in a different way, you know, hoping that your answer, your reassurance would be that mommy wakes up, that you can die and wake back up. And just how she would kind of storm off, you know, just the jolt. I could almost feel intuitively the jolt in her little body of like, oh, like, you know, no, like not being able to understand that. Right. Yeah. And yet it was so important for her trust so her not to lose trust in us for us to be able to tell her the truth. Um, yeah. And and halfway through that month, there's a chapter in the book called Maybe. And it's the halfway through that month of her unconsciousness when it became clearer to me that, that the hope that they had that they might turn this around uh, was really our hope. And was the, the doctors were not believing much of that. And I said to her, we need to start to tell her that maybe mama will die because this cannot come as a, uh, a shock. 
and and have her know that we knew that might happen because she's got to trust us. She's got to trust us that we will find a way to help her with that truth. And so we did have lots of maybe conversations, which is maybe itself is a very complicated construct for a three- or four-year-old because it has so many different meanings to a child, you know, everything from if you're a good girl, then this will happen, you know. (laughs) If if mommy decides, if the grown-ups decide, then this will happen. Maybe, will I be six feet tall? I don't know, but someone might know. Your doctor might know. The maybe that I was trying to explain to her was the maybe that no one knows and no one can find out and no one has control over. That's a huge maybe for a child to understand. Yes, yes. And because it's so abstract and abstract thinking isn't formalized yet. So you did the best that you could in her language through her play and, and trying to help her grapple with what was happening. And one, one of the things about childhood loss is that it isn't really a single loss. It's losses. Um, and when, as you watch the, as you look at the, the play that occurs over the next two years of our relationship, it's loss of a sense of security in the world. Who will take care of me if Papa dies? You know, mm-hmm. what will happen when you die? You know, it's the loss of what does this, this single loss is not just there, you know. Um, yeah. It is, it is, uh, it, it's more than that. Um, so, um, I'm sorry, that's a, a beat. That, no, that's okay. I can still okay. hear you. Okay. Don't worry about that. Um, but, but it is multiple losses, and, and one of the most important is that sense of loss of safety and security that, the, that my world and the people who keep me safe are guaranteed. Are you there, Mary? Oh, yes. 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 Can you say that last sentence again, please? You broke up for a moment. That, that my loss. My, my world and its safety and security are guaranteed. Um, in, the plays, in, the, in the play that happens a year when she's five and six and seven, it's, it's really about um, how is, is my world safe for me to grow up in? What does it mean right. that I had this early loss and what would happen if I had further losses and how can I express that fear that... Um, my world is is not as as uh, as safe as I might have imagined it could be, um, and that's reworked because her understanding of the reality of of loss changes at five and six and seven, um, right. and the understanding that the grown-ups can't always promise uh, something. Um, we we can't promise something, and. Um, uh, and as they a- get older, children understand that and feel the risk. So the initial loss of who will take me to soccer becomes what if all the people who love me suddenly disappear? Who will take care of me? That's a much bigger question. Um, Certainly it is. And Mary, I'm, I'm curious about because another story going on in your memoir, just as important, is that you lost your sister. And I know I have listeners that have lost a sibling and I wondered if you could speak to us some about your healing journey and what might be helpful for those who have gone through the loss of a sibling. 
I, you know, I think the the one thing that um, really struck me was how uniquely powerful a sibling relationship is, and how little attention was has been placed um, a little more recently. But at that time, if you Googled sibling loss, all mm-hmm. you found was um, information about uh, the death of a young child uh, um, from maybe leukemia at age five and how that impacted the seven and the nine-year-old. There was almost nothing about adult sibling loss in the literature. And wow. it was called by some disenfranchised loss because um, we sort of assumed that once you survive childhood together and you moved away from one another, that losing uh, a sibling was no different from losing a best friend or, you know, a buddy or another colleague. And it was kind of minimized in a way, it it sounds to me. Very much so. And and I remember people would say to me, well, did you, did she live Mm. near you? Did you, you know, are you, do you stay in, did your kids go to the same school? Did you, you know, and I say no, but somehow it almost felt like they were saying, well, then you're not that close, you know. And um, as I tried to say in the chapter that that talks about sister loss, um, siblings are part of your life story, and they hold a piece of your history in a way that no one else does. They are the only people who share your nightmares when you wake up in the same room and, and, uh, and the nightmares that are outside that room, your life story, your fears, your parents, your, and, and yet they see it through their own individual personality and lives, and that bond makes sibling relationships something I think we need to be much more respectful of. And I think that we're coming around to recognizing that adult sibling loss is just as important a loss as the loss of a parent or the loss of a spouse or the loss of a child. We don't rank those things, but somehow uh, sibling loss had been a disenfranchised or less important, less attended to loss um, than I think it should be. And I agree and really noticed that in your chapter where people would ask those kind of qualifying questions, trying to assess almost like they didn't know what to say. So it's like, oh, how close were you? Did you live in the same town? And and almost how you could see um, trying to minimize that even maybe for you or for their own comfort level. And, and I mean, I every sibling relationship is different. Those that are close, though, there's just a timelessness, that distance and it just bypasses all of that when you talked about the shared history of how siblings have their own unique history of the same family. And I'm sometimes amazed talking to my little sister that we grew up in the same home. Then my parents remarried. And uh, I have two sisters from that other marriage, two half sisters. But my sister and I, that grew up together. We're in the same home and her memory is complete. Her experience was totally yes. different. And still as yes. grown women, we remark like, what house did you grow up in? I was like, yes. I was in the same house as you. And it's just such a yes. powerful relationship, being able to even view your own upbringing through different eyes that you don't have a reference for. It's amazing, I, I think the that, sibling relationship. So well. It's so well said, Lisa, because Thank you. Uh, those who've read the book will, will maybe be surprised hearing us talk for, to hear me say, we were not that close growing up. Martha and I were very different people, 
And we looked at each other as kind of odd ducks. I was the introverted person who wanted to stay home and read a book and listen to music. And she was outgoing, active. You know, she was a, uh, a rebel, uh, joined every cause there was. Um, and yet, I don't think that made our bond any less important uh, at this moment in time when we shared tragedy together, when we were fighting yeah. for her life. Because, um, as I said in the book, um, seeing someone else grow up in the same circumstances and turn out differently also gives you hope for how different you can be. You know, yes. it, it's I didn't want to be everything she was, but darn it, I wanted to see how she would be would have been at fifty and at <laughs> absolutely and at sixty, and that would have enriched my life and challenged me to be more than I could be, and 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 that's a huge loss not to have that beside me. How how do you feel your sister's presence with you? Do you feel Martha with you? I do feel um, this this book, as painful as it is sometimes to for first readers, for me, because it really has come out uh, 19 years after her death, has been very celebratory. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it feels, it, if, if I, I feel her presence even, I feel her sort of smiling and saying, yes, you did something with this. Because that's yes. who she was. She would have said, don't waste this experience. Use it. Do something with it. You know, she was in college, as I say in the book, the red-haired Irish Catholic girl who went to Black Panther meetings at night. You know, <laughs> she was a fighter, and she would have said, do something useful with this. That's why she did the experimental treatment at Johns Hopkins. Somebody's got to volunteer if we're going to learn how to beat this terrible disease. I, I can hear her voice now saying those things, you know? Yes. And so I do feel like it's honoring her to do this, and I, I feel like she's cheering me on right now as I try to sell the book and talk more. I, I, I'm hoping to do more teaching and more uh, as training with people who are interested in understanding childhood grief and adult grief uh, as time goes on. And I feel her presence as we've been talking. I feel I felt her presence as I was reading and taking notes and just I feel Martha with us. And I think your book and your story, her story, is an offering to help people that children that have lost a mother, siblings that have lost a sibling. I, I just see it as an offering for to help because it's it's just written in such a raw and real way. There's not all this clinical jargon, but there's enough of it that you can really have an appreciation and understanding for grief through the eyes of a child and through the eyes of a sister. That's an interesting, it's nice to hear you say that. I appreciate that because that was a real struggle because I recognized when, when I was in my own deepest grief, I had a library in my office of books about child development, child loss, child trauma. None of it was helpful to me. All I wanted to read, the only thing I wanted to read, was people's personal stories. And, mm-hmm. and I, it made me realize that we learn from story and we learn from deep emotion. And that is certainly true in therapy. People come in to tell and retell their stories and to touch the deepest emotion in those stories. And that's those are the guidelines for healing. 
And so I decided fairly early on I was not going to try to write a treatise on childhood grief. I, I, I didn't mm-hmm. think that that would be as useful as trying to tell as honest a story I could about our grief and how we survived it and hope that the resonance in that that people felt to their own stories would give them whatever they needed. Yes, absolutely. A a success in this memoir. Where can listeners get your memoir and how can they reach you? And can you talk to us some about your work as a clinical psychologist and your private practice? Um, uh, Certainly. The book is available wherever books are sold, as they say. It is in indie bookstores. It's at Barnes & Noble. It's on Amazon.com. It's everywhere. It's in general distribution, so you should be able to find it easily enough. Uh, you can also buy it at the She Writes website, uh, which is the, my publisher is She Writes Press, uh, publishes, which publishes books for and by women, and it's a wonderful new, uh, been a wonderful publishing experience with them. Um, I have a, a website, maryepluffauthor.com, and that has uh, all of uh, the information on my writing in general. And it has a, uh, a link to email me directly if you want to contact me. Uh, and also a link to purchase the book uh, through um, those uh, sellers that I mentioned. I have a Facebook presence also. Um, one of the things that, that um, I decided to do was have a separate Facebook page for the book. And that's Mary E. Pluff Author on Facebook as well. I have published on that and will continue to publish on that um, essays that come out of the book, elaborations on thoughts uh, on the ideas in the book, expansions of some of the child grieving material that is in story form in the book in a little more technical form. Um, So those are the primary places that uh, people can um, find out more about childhood grief and about me. And I'd like um, to spell, right. oh, I'm so, may I interrupt for one moment? I'd like to spell cool. your last name for listeners. Yeah. Um, it Pluff is spelled P-L-O-U-F-F-E, just so they That's can correct. pull you up. Okay, and That's yes, correct. and your clinical practice in Maine. Um, my, my, yes, I'm still in clinical practice in Maine. My clinical practice now is primarily with adults, individual adults. I do some consultation and some teaching and some supervision, but I have moved away from child therapy. I did that um, more in the earlier parts of my career, but I still do some supervision of people who do child therapy. Um, but that's uh, right now it's, it's a little easier not to have to get down on the floor. Yes, I do remember that, Mary, from the past. Good point. (laughs) And toys everywhere and colors and less to clean up with adults. That's right. That's right. (laughs) But I love to see the parents and I love to see, I do a lot of individual therapy with professional adults right now. Okay. Okay. What would you like to leave our listeners with at the conclusion? now of our show. Um, the, um, the, I'd like to leave you with Leah Marie, um, who was 15 when I first asked her um, mm-hmm. if I could write this book. And she said to me, what would I have to do? I don't know what I remember. And I said, you wouldn't have to do anything. I have all the memories. 
But I said, mm. you'd have to give me permission. Yes. She said, you know what people say to me? She said, people say, um, you're lucky your mother died when you were so young and you don't remember her, so it didn't really affect you. I, I can't even believe people speak that. You put that in the memoir. I, I can't even believe it. And she said to me, um, that is so untrue and it makes me so angry. If this will, it affected me. I may not remember anything, but it affected me a lot. And if this book will help other little kids, you should write it. And that, mm-hmm. that, was, um, that was her message. So um, that's what I, I it, memory, loss is not about memory. Loss is about emptiness. And loss is about how that emptiness lives in you and grows in your body. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I said how loss lives in your body like that. Yes. Yes. And grows with you over Mm. time and evolves just as you grow. That loss grows and your understanding of it and your meaning of it grows over time. If I can get that message across to people, you can't prevent that. You can't do therapy at three that will prevent an 11-year-old from feeling very deeply the loss uh, in a new and profoundly important way. You can simply stand by her side at 11 and say, ah, yes, now you know it this way. Now the sadness lives in you this way. Well, I just want to to thank you and how I have just been really sensitive to your story and so pleased to be able to just keep Martha alive through our interview and, and in your memoir and just talking about the really important themes. It's just been a pleasure. I'm so glad your memoir came to my desk and just thank oh, you thank for you being so my much. guest. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity, Lisa. You're very welcome, Mary. And I hope you have a really good day. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. That concludes our show today with Dr. Mary Plouffe. Available, you can find her at her website, Mary Plouffe, P-L... Oh, Mary Plouffe. Here I am pronouncing it phonetically. P-L-O-U-F-F-E dot com or Mary E P L O U F F E author.com. Thank you for listening and join me next week as I bring you another show. Bye-bye. You're listening to all things therapy with Lisa Tahir only on LA talk radio.